home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Greetings, folks. My name is Doug, and this is episode number 28 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. And as I record this episode, it is March 2018. Now, the month of March is rather bittersweet for me for a couple reasons. First of all, my birthday falls in this month. Now, I'm not one to get hung up on age or milestones or anything like that. Age is, after all, just a number. But (laughs) every year, that number does get bigger. This year, I'm going to be turning 51. Turning 50 wasn't a big deal. But there's a difference between being able to say that I'm 50 versus saying I'm in my 50s. You know what I mean? But the reality is that in a lot of ways, I still feel like I'm in my 20s. But it doesn't matter much how I feel. Time continues to move forward. And a birthday is a gentle reminder of that fact. March also brings another anniversary. This year will mark the 10th anniversary of my father's passing. My mom had passed away six years before, so... I became a 40-year-old orphan when my dad died in 2008. I'm not trying to be morbid here. After all, this is something that we all have to deal with at some point in our lives. Life is terminal. None of us gets out of life alive. Insert your own cliche here. So what I want to do in this episode is share my experience dealing with my father's death and his estate. As George Carlin said, A house is nothing more than a pile of stuff with a cover on it. But what happens to that stuff when we are gone? Hopefully I can offer you a little bit of guidance for when you are faced with this unfortunate situation and help you make things easier for your loved ones when your time comes. Let me start off by telling you a little bit about my father. My dad was born in 1924, so he would have been a child growing up during the Great Depression. Although, frankly, I really don't know how much that affected him in Canada. His mother died in 1926, apparently during childbirth. Now, it was a fairly large family. My dad had six siblings, including a younger brother. And all were born within a year or two of each other. For whatever reason, either because he didn't have the means or the ability to take care of his young family, my grandfather split the family up. Some were adopted out, and my dad went to live with an aunt. My dad would have been old enough to fight in the Second World War, but he didn't. I know he was blind in one eye. Uh, I'm not sure if that was from birth, or if it was from an injury, or... If it was an injury, when that injury actually happened. But that would have been enough to keep him out of the service if he had chosen to join. I'm really not sure what the history is here. What I do know is that he delivered telegrams during the war. His cousin told me this at his funeral, and I later found a picture of him in his uniform. 
as you can imagine, a lot of these telegrams would have been the, um, we regret to inform you, variety. The kind of telegram that no parent wants to receive. And I don't know what this might have done to him as being the person who delivered these. But I knew nothing about this at all while he was alive. Dad worked in the office of a major manufacturing company for over 40 years. This despite only having a sixth grade education. This was a time when you could get a job without a high school diploma and you could work for the same company for your entire career and be able to retire with a pension. I don't know the full story of his courtship of my mother, but they were married in 1962 and they rented a duplex for a couple of years before buying a house in 1964. The house that they bought was a typical suburban ranch style house in a new neighborhood. Some of the original neighbors are still there today. The house was built in the late 50s, and they were the second owners of this particular house. Um, If you can picture the neighborhood from the Wonder Years, that's what this was. Basically, the house resembled a shoebox with a roof. About 1,100 or 1,200 square feet. Modest by today's standards, but plenty of house for a small family. I came along in 67, and I was the only child. When I was growing up, my mom stayed at home, doing housewife stuff like cooking and cleaning. My dad worked every day from 8 till 4.30 and would come home about five minutes past five. Mom would always have dinner on the table by 5.10. And we ate as a family, in the kitchen, at the table. We didn't eat in front of the TV. And we talked. It was dinner conversation. And after dinner, my mom would have a coffee and a cigarette. My dad and I would wash the dishes. My dad washed and I dried. No dirty dishes were ever left in the sink. Everything was put away. After, my mom would retire to the bedroom and I would head off to do my homework. Dad would go downstairs, where he would either putter around his workbench or relax in his lazy boy and watch TV. When I was finished my homework, I would go downstairs and watch television. And if our tastes did not align, my dad would relinquish the television to me, and he would go in the other room and putter around his workbench. I have no idea what he did. He didn't really build anything, and there was no evidence of any projects. But he spent a lot of time at that workbench. For a while, I had an interest in building plastic scale model kits. And he gave up a section of his bench to me. So this one corner of the bench, my model in progress was always there. It's funny. I sort of took these small sacrifices for granted at the time. But now that I'm a father, I can totally appreciate what he was doing. Growing up, I played hockey. So there were weekends at the arena. And in the summer, I played baseball. And both my parents were always there to watch me play sports. Now, 
I got to tell you, I sucked. I was usually the worst player on the team. Uh, sports just wasn't my thing. But my, my parents were there in the stands, probably embarrassed and humiliated, but they were there to support me. All in all, I enjoyed a fairly typical middle-class childhood. So, yada, 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 fast forward to 2002. My mom had her share of health issues, and she ended up in the hospital a few times the last few years of her life. In 1999, she actually died, but was revived and ended up in the ICU. I remember my dad calling me to tell me what happened, and I remember going to the hospital and seeing her pretty much comatose with the breathing tube jammed down her throat. The second day, she had improved. Still had the breathing tube, but she tried to communicate by writing on a notepad. Uh, it was indecipherable scribbles, but at least she was conscious. Day three, I go into the ICU, and I don't see any nurses or other medical staff. I turn the corner to where I could see my mother's bed, and there are three or four nurses standing around her. I tell you, that was a horrible feeling because, of course, I thought the worst was happening. That is, until I saw that Mom was sitting upright in bed and the nurses around her were all, they, they were all watching Titanic. Anyway, my, my mother recovered slowly, spent some time in a nursing home uh, before she returned home. But during that time, my wife and I got married, and my mother was able to be at the wedding. And a few years later, our daughter was born. And I remember my mom and my dad both coming to the hospital to see their grandchild. And my mother was absolutely beaming. I, I don't think she could have been more thrilled. Six months later, my mother would be back in the hospital needing emergency surgery. Given her age and her health, the doctors wanted us to be absolutely clear on her wishes as far as do not resuscitate was concerned. Now, my mother, she was realistic. She said that, you know, she'd been in this situation before. And had she not been resuscitated, she would have missed out on our wedding and she would have missed the birth of her granddaughter. So she said if it came to it, to give her a week. And then if things didn't look like they were going to improve, to let her go. Well, the recovery from surgery was not without complications. And we got a call one night that she had taken a turn for the worst. I picked my dad up. And we went up to the hospital. And when we got there, they were taking mom to the ICU. And they asked her if she wanted to be intubated. She indicated yes, that she did. And her last words to us were, sorry, guys. We respected her wishes, but after a week, it was clear that she was not going to recover this time.
After the funeral, my wife and I tried to gauge my dad's plans. Would he be moving into a retirement residence, downsizing to a smaller house, moving in with us, or staying where he was? He made it clear that he wanted to stay in his house. I offered to go in to do some painting, make the house more neutral, so he would be more comfortable. I mean, let's face it, Dusty Rose didn't really suit him. But he did not want to make any changes. He did make one change, though. He had always wanted a truck. My mom would never let him have a truck. Why do we need a truck to just go get groceries? Well, less than a month after my mom's funeral, Dad traded the car in on a new pickup truck. And that truck became part of his identity. He had his own mobility issues. He was always a heavy guy, and even after having both knees replaced, he had difficulty walking. Whenever he'd come out to visit us, he would toot the horn in the driveway, and my wife and daughter and I would go out and sit in the truck with him for a visit. He did go out almost daily to Tim Hortons, meeting up with some friends for coffee, and he would often bring us half a dozen danishes or some donuts, even though we told him not to, because we were trying to get him healthier. But I think he thought that he needed the excuse to come out to see us. We would go and see him once a week to clean the house and get his groceries. So between us visiting him and him visiting us, we saw my dad a few times a week. And he was doing okay. He was going to the doctor regularly and he was staying on top of his medications. And after he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, he was making sure that he checked his blood sugar when he needed to. There was never any cause for concern. One night, we got a phone call. My wife answered. It was my dad's neighbor from across the street, and he asked to speak to me. Now, this neighbor was one of the OGs of the hood, so to speak. He and his wife raised four children, two boys who were older than me, and two girls, one who was a year older and one who was a couple years younger. As a child, I often played with these girls. When I was <laughs> too young to truly appreciate the situation. So there's a lifelong history there. At my wedding, my wife and I had a dollar dance, something that was a tradition in her family, but not one in mine. So as she was dancing, I was standing there awkwardly until this guy came up and danced with me for a few seconds. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is, the life of the party type. I mean, really great guy. Always got along really well with him. But it's not like we called one another. So this phone call was completely unexpected. He said that he had checked on my dad and told me that he was sick. He told me that he called the paramedics and thought that I should probably be there. That was all he said on the phone. When I pulled up to the house about half an hour later, my worst fears were realized. The ambulance was backed into the driveway, but 
I could see the paramedics standing around inside the house. In front of the house next door was a police car. And when I got out of my car and started up towards the front door, the officer stopped me, asked me who I was, what I was doing there. And when I told him, he launched into the, I regret to inform you, or words to that effect. Uh, Everything from that point on is hazy. The neighbor from across the street had come over and he expressed his condolences. And then we all made our way into the house. The paramedics said they were sorry. I was led to the bedroom to where my dad was sprawled out on the bed, one shoe on and one shoe off as if he was just getting up. Someone said that it looked like a heart attack, but they couldn't say for certain until the coroner could examine him. The cop asked about the last time I saw my dad. It was either one or two days before when he came out to see us, but I wasn't entirely sure which day that was. The neighbor said that he hadn't been seen at all that day. He hadn't gone to check his mail, and he didn't go out to Tim Hortons at the usual time, which is why he thought he should go over and check on him. Good thing he did. I will always be grateful for that. I called my wife, let her know what was going on. And she took our daughter to a friend and came to the house. And she was there when the coroner arrived. The coroner, um, he crashed in like a tidal wave. He was, uh, he was an interesting guy. He introduced himself as the coroner, but he's also a lawyer. So if we ever need a lawyer, we could call him. And he gave us his card. He went back to examine my dad, and a couple minutes later he came back. And he confirmed that it had all the appearances of a massive heart attack that killed him instantly, likely that morning. God bless him, he said. That's the way to go. I guess he was right about that. I mean, to die suddenly in your own home, doing your regular routine, isn't that what we all hope for? He confirmed my dad's health history and his medications and explained that someone would be coming to remove the body. Or maybe it was the cop who explained that. I don't know. It's it's all a blur. I think my wife made a few phone calls that night. We went through my dad's little phone book and she handled the calls. This was before smartphones and thank goodness for that because my dad had something with phone numbers written on it that didn't need a password to find or anything like that. Um, everyone, everyone should keep a list of important numbers where they can be found easily, especially when they might not be accessible on a phone. My mom's side of the family was easy. There's a couple key contacts, you know, you get a hold of them and they, they call the rest of the family. Um, being able to group contacts in this way really simplifies things because nobody wants to spend hours on the phone making the same calls over and over and over. Contacting one person on each branch of the family tree, um, and enlisting their help 
for the rest of the branch is a good way to go. At some point, my buddy came over. It was his flower that my wife had left her daughter with. And shortly after that, my wife left. My friend and I, we sat and shot the breeze waiting for the body removal. It was great to have that kind of support. Those guys finally came. They were both older gentlemen, and frankly, I I wondered if they'd be able to handle my dad. Uh, Should I go back there and offer some help? Uh, What's the protocol? But I decided to just let them do their job. I think at that point, they took the body directly to the funeral home. My parents had the forethought to completely plan their funerals, so there was no question about where to go. So, anyway, after this was done, I opened the bedroom window a crack, removed the mattress from the house, and I left for the night. My neighbor had suggested that we take money out of the bank before the account was frozen. Uh, that felt really weird to me, but I mean, I'd gone to get cash for my dad before, so that wasn't a big deal. And, and in this case, I, I, I mean, I was the executor and the entire estate would be coming to me anyway, but if there are other heirs, be careful about doing this for obvious reasons. The next day, my wife and I went to the funeral home, and once again, um, everything was pre-planned and prepaid. So whenever they tried to upsell, we could we could resist it without having any kind of guilt. As morbid as this may seem, <laughs> it really is a good idea to make your wishes known, so there is no confusion. But having everything pre-planned and pre-paid is the ideal way to go. The funeral director just went over a checklist, told us what was included, made a couple suggestions, and that was about it. We then went back to the house and rifled through my parents' photo albums, and then we went through our own photo albums, looking for pictures to display. Um, This funeral home produced this beautiful memorial DVD with those pictures. There's something beautiful and cathartic about going through photos and experiencing the memories. Uh, something is kind of lost when everything is digital. Um, so here's another suggestion. I think it's really important to have hard copies of important photographs. At the very least, you should at least make access to digital photos easy, like having some sort of online family archive or something like that. Even if it's Dropbox, you know, just to have something that, you know, is easily accessible by other family members. The only other thing we had to do was arrange for the catering for the luncheon after the funeral. All the funeral arrangements went smoothly. Again, The pre-planning was the key. We didn't even have to write an obituary. The funeral itself 
It was beautiful. I was astounded by the number of people who attended. Uh, the, the funeral home had to keep bringing in chairs so everyone could sit. I mean, it, it was just a wonderful send-off. My dad had been cremated, so the only thing left to do was to bury the ashes. Uh, that too was simple. My parents owned their own plots in the cemetery for many years. In fact, I have my plot next to theirs. Scheduling the burial was a little bit complicated given the timing. And my wife later pointed out to me that we were actually burying my dad on my birthday. It's funny how some things happen that way. So, the emotions and the grieving have had their time and place. They're they're not done, but now the focus has to shift because there is business to take care of. I was the executor and the sole heir, so my process was really quite simple. But easy or hard, this is stuff that needs to get done. The funeral home will supply copies of the proof of death certificate. And trust me, you will need many of these. My parents had a safety deposit box and they'd also put my name on it. So I was able to go in and remove its contents without any issue. Um, That's where they kept copies of their wills and the deed to the house, the, the really important papers. Um, so I took that stuff along with the death certificate to the lawyer. They also had a file box that they kept in a closet in the house where they kept all the utility bills and insurance policies and other receipts. Now, I cared very little about a receipt for carpeting from 1974, but it was handy finding all of this stuff in one place. I didn't plan to sell the house right away so I could go through stuff and clean everything out and do some repainting. It was a nice luxury to have. Otherwise, you may have to put the house on the market ASAP if it's going to be sold. My wife and I went through the house from top to bottom, room by room, deciding what we were going to keep, what we were going to sell, donate, or just toss out. Um... There were many items that had some sentimental value for me. There was there were some items that had sentimental value for my parents. And there were some things that had monetary value and a whole lot of stuff that really didn't have much value at all. These were all decisions that had to be made. Again, being an only child made this process easy. Often, you're going to have siblings fighting over single items. And a will that is very specific can reduce those kinds of conflicts. But really, at the end of the day, it's just stuff. There were certain knickknacks and tchotchkes that were important to my mother. But... Do I keep something just because it was meaningful for someone else? Letting go of some of this stuff was an emotional roller coaster. 
the one thing that I came to realize was the perceived value does not equate to actual value. Furniture that my mother had kept in pristine condition that looked new was hopelessly outdated. Stuff that my mother thought was going to be worth a lot of money someday simply wasn't. And things that were treasured were, at the end of the day, just things. It helps to look at things with an analytical eye, divorced from emotion. But, (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to say that's easy. Over the course of the next couple months, I fixed up the house. I wanted to freshen things up with new paint. I wanted to get rid of the wall-to-wall carpeting that was at least 20 years old. And I wanted to replace the driveway. Could we have sold the house as it was? Probably. Did my upgrades increase the value? Probably not. Uh, But it helped the house show better. But again, emotion played a key role. It was out of respect for my mother that I wanted to sell the house in the best condition possible. I needed that closure. But I probably wasn't any farther ahead than if I just put the house on the market as it was. Something to keep in mind if the plan is to sell the house. Insurance, house insurance, is more expensive if the house is vacant. Check the policy to make sure you are covered. By not selling the house right away, I was able to take care of subscriptions and other mailings as they came in without forwarding the mail. Otherwise, that's what you'd do. You'd forward the mail to another address and take care of the stuff when it came in. My dad had a lot of subscriptions. And he bought a lot of stuff through Publishers Clearinghouse. I made the necessary phone calls as the stuff rolled in. And I was able to have the refunds made out directly to me. But, of course, those would normally be part of the estate. When it came time to put the house on the market, I went around to open houses in the neighborhood to check out the comps to see what similar houses were valued at. Now, this was in 2008, when the economy was just starting to go belly up. So, things were pretty volatile. The stuff that we wanted to keep was moved to storage and the stuff that we planned to sell was packed away in a couple of the large closets in the basement and the rest of the furniture was staged. The agent that I chose was, again, with respect to my mother. She was impressed with this particular agent who had introduced himself to her when he was looking for people in the neighborhood interested in selling their house. You know, I was looking for possible clients and she had a long conversation with this guy and, um, she called him on a couple of occasions whenever they made any improvements in the property. And whenever she entertained the idea of selling the house, this was the guy that she said she was going to call. I hadn't given it much thought, but I happened to see his ad on a bus stop bench, and I thought, "Mm, why not? He's the one that mom would call. 
Let me just say that it was not the best idea to introduce myself to him by saying, you had an ongoing relationship with my mother. I probably should have said professional and maybe relationship wasn't the best word choice. But anyway, this guy agreed to sell the house and I was pretty confident that it would sell quickly. The one thing that we had going in our favor was location. It was walking distance to a really good elementary school and an excellent high school. The agent said that he could market it to the Chinese community because the high school was well known for its math program. Not stereotyping there at all, is he? Anyway, with the business out of the way, um, we talked a little more personally. He talked about his own mother passing away. And I compared my mother dying in the hospital to my dad dying at home. And the agent was horrified. I wish you hadn't told me that. That's going to cause a problem. You see, we Westerners, we think it's best to be able to die at home. But for the Chinese, it's bad luck to buy a house where someone has died. And that was his intended market. In fact, the first agent to present the offer represented Chinese clients and was, in fact, Chinese himself. And the question did come up. Has anyone died in the house? My agent quickly replied, "Um, no. Now, I should have fired him on the spot. But as the other agent stepped out to call his clients, we had a little discussion, and upon the other agent's return, we disclosed the fact that someone had indeed died in the house, and with that, the deal died. But at least I could live with myself. Uh, For the record, my agent was putting his license at risk. But it didn't take too long to find another buyer for the house, and it eventually sold. And the buyers were a young couple just starting out, so they were a perfect fit for the house, and I didn't mind giving them a good deal. So, now that the house was sold, we were able to have a big garage sale to get rid of everything else that was left. My daughter even set up a lemonade stand and raked in some pretty good coin herself. Anything that didn't sell was dropped off for donation, and we were done. We used the same lawyer for the real estate transaction as we used to handle the estate. So the only thing left to collect were the checks from the house and the bank accounts. I had already dealt with my dad's life insurance directly and received that money quickly, which gave me the finances to be able to pay for the funeral and to fix up the house. All in all, as much as it sucked losing my father, handling Everything after his death was made easier by my parents being so organized. Nothing is certain but death and taxes, they say. But you can evade taxes. You can't evade death. Losing a loved one isn't easy, and none of us wants to think about our own mortality, but the ultimate transition is made easier with planning and perspective. So let Let me go over the key points again. These are the key takeaways that um, I want you to have. At a certain age, 
consider pre-planning your funeral. At the very least, make your final wishes known to your family and talk to your parents and loved ones about their wishes and that way you can honor them without second-guessing your decisions. Give your parents' neighbors a way to contact you if there is an emergency. Understand the dynamics of your family. Have certain contacts on each branch of the family tree so that information can easily be passed along without having to call each individual yourself. Write down important contact numbers and keep it in a place so it's easy to find. Do it for yourself and make sure your loved ones do it. I don't know, can you print out a little contact list from your smartphone? If not, make, just write it down. Write it down. Archive important family photos in physical photo albums. Do not risk digital content simply evaporating into the cloud. Keep important papers, insurance policies, deeds, and other stuff like that together in a safe place so that loved ones can easily find it if they need to. Now remember, my mother, with the uh, file with the file box in the closet, every time she got that down for something, she always said to me, everything is in here. It's either in here or it's in the safety deposit box. Made it easy. Don't confuse family heirlooms with stuff. There may be things that are important artifacts in your family, but there's also a lot of things that hold no real meaning. Just because you love a certain tchotchke doesn't mean that you should expect your children to. And just because your mother loved a certain tchotchke doesn't mean that you have to. Stuff is just stuff. That said, that trunk that was made by your great-great-grandfather that came over from the old world with him when he first came to this country in the 1800s and has been passed down from generation to generation? Uh, maybe that should probably be passed down to the next generation. Things and houses contain memories. I mean, there were days when I was cleaning the house that I had to stop and cry <laughs> before getting back to work. You can accomplish so much more when you are able to get past the emotion. Stuff is just stuff. A house is just a pile of stuff with a cover on it. The memories? You always carry those with you. And with that, that's going to do it for this episode of the Thumb and Hammer podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me at thumbandhammer.com or on Twitter at Thumb and Hammer. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me. I will talk to you again soon. Cheers. <laughs>